When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to More Than Amused Podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts, hosted by Stani and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female artists of the past. Welcome to More Than Amused Podcast. My name is Sadie. I'm Stani, and this is our first episode of March Madness. How exciting. Happy month of (laughs) feminine rage. And happy Women's History Month. We talked about it a little bit on last week's episode, and we've been posting about it on social. But Mm -hmm. if you don't know, this entire month for Women's History Month, we are focusing on feminine rage. Therefore, it is our own version of March Madness. Absolutely. Um, Way less sports. (laughs) <laughs> way more feminism and an art history involved yes exactly. my kind of thing we also dropped our merch which is awesome thank you so much to everyone who's ordered already it is so wonderful seeing those orders mm-hmm. come in seeing names we recognize and being like oh my gosh <laughs> yeah. yeah so that's wonderful it's only available for this month so if you have your eyes on one definitely grab it before the month is over luckily True. you've got a little bit of time but yeah you got two paychecks coming, basically, yes. that you can choose to save to it mm-hmm. if that's what you want to do. Yes. I'm very excited. I love the design so much, and I know other people love them too. And it's like, fun to be able to show people, and then you'd be like, oh, that's I so know. cool. I'm like, yeah. I know. I know. Be like, so yeah, cool. that's right. It's ours. It's ours. And now I feel like when I wear it, I can be like, yeah, go buy it now, mm-hmm. which is nice. <laughs> yeah, it is really nice. We've been working on it forever, like we said. So we've been talking about these, and it's nice to finally have it like out in the world and be like, yes, mm-hmm. this is what I did. Yep. So that people can actually see it and everything. So very exciting. And of course, this episode is going to tie into that. But before we get into it, should we talk about things? Like what's been going on? Well, <laughs> personally, a major development has happened that I got bangs. And that just I feels love like a big moment. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for loving them. I have a really big problem where if a hairdresser says, what if we did this? I go, eh, sure, okay. Yeah. So I went into my haircut just thinking I was going to get the same thing done again. And then she was like, well, last time we almost did bangs. You just want to do bangs this time? And I was like, sure, let's do it. And then I left and I was like, oh no, <laughs> what did I do? I like What did them. I do? It's but they're very, going like, on me. <laughs> 70s, like 60s, 70s vibes. Yes. Mm-hmm. I like it. I'm okay with that. I'm yeah. okay with that. Took me like a day or two to be like, Okay, I like it. Someone at work said it's giving Stevie Nicks. And yes. That made me feel a lot better. Yeah. I'm like, I'm okay to be giving St- Stevie oh, Nicks. Oh, yeah. We should always be okay to be giving Stevie Nicks. I will Nicks. be giving, yeah. <laughs> if I'm giving even a little bit Stevie Nicks, I feel very good about that. Yeah. So, no, I agree. Feeling better now. That's very fun. Yes. And then I'm also in the process of making music and hopefully – I have two songs that are like done in the sense that all they have to do is get mixed and mastered. So I'm very excited about that. And they're so good, everyone. Yes. Stani hears everything. I have heard it. They're amazing. There's, yeah. Thank you. Very excited for those to be released. 
I am too. Mm-hmm. Okay, sorry. I'm just going to use this as my own moment right now. Yeah, but go for it. I'm also, I don't know if I told you, I'm like training for a half marathon. Exciting. <laughs> it is exciting. I This is what happens when I like casually say things to people because I have a friend who has ran one last year and I told her, I was like, yeah, you know what? I think I've wanted to do that for a while. And then at the beginning of the year, mm-hmm. a week into the new year, when if someone comes to me and says, do you want to do a half marathon? I'm like, yeah, New Year's resolutions. <laughs> but I did say yes. And it's been really good, actually. It's becoming a therapeutic thing. But That's this morning good. I did run eight miles and I now feel like I'm dying. So Fair. That's a lot of miles, Sadie. Thank you. Yeah. I don't feel like I should be able to do that. I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, I think my body hurts a little bit too much more than it's supposed to right now. It's fine. I did it. I did you it. Did. I lived to tell the tale and now we are here to podcast. Yeah. So happy to be here today. Glad that you didn't die. I think I, I would mean, probably die if I tried to run eight miles right now. So. I mean, at this point, I've been running like three times a week since January. So mm. now it's like nice to see. I'm like, oh, it works. If you do things consistently, they get easier. Whoa, I think I'm the first person who's realized that. You're right. Um, you should write a book. <laughs> I should write a book. <laughs> but anyways, so. that's really funny. No, that gives me hope. I'm I signed up for a boxing class next week. That's so cool. <laughs> I am terrified because I have to go alone and it's like this boxing gym, but it's so close to my house and I'm that's just going to try cool. it. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about rage. Can you believe it? <laughs> Wow, this is topical. Okay. (laughs) And we've talked a lot in the past about how teenage girls aren't really given channels to funnel Mm -hmm. their anger because you're conditioned from a very young age as a woman, whether or not people try to. It just happens in society where it's you can't scream, you can't shout, don't be annoying, you'll be viewed as like – Mm-hmm. a b-word or you'll be undesirable or you're co- you'll come on too strong like all this stuff about like, be smaller be quieter be better and so when we get angry we don't have anywhere to put it and then it just festers inside of you and I feel like ever since I got divorced <laughs> I've just had some leftover anger that I don't know what to do with because I so valid yeah and I was like so nice to my ex and I don't feel like I ever really you were so nice to your ex. <laughs> yeah yes I will so. validate that yeah. <laughs> so I don't feel like I ever channeled my anger and let myself actually be angry about it and I've been trying yeah. so hard to get over it and then I was like maybe I just need to hit get something angry <gasps> yeah yeah I like this journey for you. I like this. Yeah, good. Yeah, so I'm like, we'll see how it goes. I don't even know how much the memberships cost because they don't put them on the website, which is a pet peeve of mine, but yes, whatever. They just want you to come in for the free first class and yeah. then they'll tell you. So we'll see. But if I enjoy it and it's actually something I can stick to, I feel like this will be like my mode of exercise that I find enjoyable. Like people have those. They're like, mm-hmm. I go rock climbing or I go running and they like look forward to it. Yeah. I don't have that. So it would be nice to have a hobby outside of work. Yeah. That <laughs> get all your anger out. <laughs> yeah. Go I like this. This is good. Every week and hit something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought it was very fitting stepping outside my comfort zone, embracing some yeah. rage for March and Happy March new. Madness, Stani. Thank you. 
That's, you know what, that should be a way we start the episode now for this month is like, how did you embody March Ooh, Madness? I like that. And I feel like you gave a very good answer of Thank how you, you are. Yes. Yes. I'm going to go hit something. Good. As you should. Maybe I'll actually learn how to throw a punch. I feel like self-defense wise, this is a very <laughs> yeah. practical skill that you are, right? that you're learning. Yeah. I agree. I could learn how to fight. Which with I'm some down. of the crazy stories I've seen in the news, I know we are not like a news podcast, but <laughs> yes. there was like, I follow this guy on Instagram who tells like, uh, I mean TikTok, who tells all these like self-defense stuff. This is off the topic, mm-hmm. but you all get to listen. And <laughs> But you clicked on yeah. the episode, so. <laughs> You're captive now. His username is Killer V Tactical. Ooh. He's like a retired cop and he just talks about like different scenarios and stuff that happen in the news and then like how you could protect yourself or like what you should do in things. And mm-hmm. my anxiety ridden brain, of course, is yes, tell me how I should survive a shooting even though I hardly ever leave my house but he was talking about how many women have been this ties into you too how many women have been attacked to jogging recently I know that is something that actually does scare me (laughs) but thankfully I only go places that are very there's a lot of runners but still I think about it though yep so he had this whole thing about what you could carry his wife apparently has this pepper spray that fits around her wrist and she just holds it in her hand and uh, then she just runs. And then if anything were to happen, you can just put your hand on the nozzle and attack. Because there's been some people getting attacked in the middle of the day. I have seen sketchy. a couple of things, even people in Nashville, which is where I live. Yeah. And freaks me out. Thankfully, nothing at the park and place that I run. I'm obviously That's not going to like publicly tell everyone where I am every yeah. Saturday morning. But she actually doesn't live in Nashville. She lives in Colorado. I don't live. I've never heard of that city, actually. <laughs> so you will not find me there. Yep. And I'm in Texas. Just kidding. Last place I want to be. But <laughs> no offense to any Texans. <laughs> I was going to say. What did Sorry. they do to you? Oh, no, it's I okay. Just, you know. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Politically, me and Texas don't agree. So That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I feel like we have some state slander going on here. I miss home. Go Utah. But yeah. It's anyways. snowing right now. Does that make you feel better? Actually, yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, that cured it. I'm good. Yeah. It's a beautiful day here in Tennessee. Yeah. I looked out the window or and Nashville, I was like, least. those are snowflakes. Okay. Do we want to dive into our topic today then? Yes. So, would would you like to introduce it? I would love to. Okay, so uh, this is a hard topic to explain. We are detouring a little for this one. We're not talking about the arts very much. This is very much feminist, feminine rage 101. (laughs) And one of the reasons we wanted to do this is because I know feminine rage is like a thing that's gotten thrown around a lot lately. Mm -hmm. But I know that there's still quite a few people who maybe don't fully understand what it is or like maybe think it's just when women are mad and we came up with a fancy word for it, which isn't in entirely true. So this is like brief overview of all of the reasons why feminine rage could exist. Like we obviously don't have every reason, but these are a yeah, lot yeah, of yeah. why. And then also like an introduction to like why we still need feminism in a lot of ways. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people might be like, well, every problem is solved. Yes. <laughs> Joke's on you because nope. So to start out, I just wanted to explain what feminine rage is. Feminine rage has been explained as an ancestral and inherited response to the struggles, oppressions, and wrongdoings that women have been subjected to, a compilation of the anger our ancestors could not express, 
passed down throughout generations. Mm. That sounds insane when you first hear it. And then you realize that they've actually been doing a ton of studies on – I'm trying to find what it's called. I think it's epigenetics. It's like this new thing. We don't fully understand it. But they studied a lot of the descendants of Holocaust survivors and found that they inherited trauma from their ancestors. Mm. So it's, it's something that even if they weren't the ones who really raised you, that somehow trauma and emotions can be passed down through our DNA mm. in a way that we don't fully understand yet. Mm-hmm. And it means that they have different stress hormone profiles compared to those that don't have that background, which is just crazy to me when you think about it because it's like your ancestors really impact you in so many ways beyond your control. And so it would make sense that there is this inherent anger and stuff that's been festering in women through generations, especially women that have been through even more things like interesting slavery, racial discrimination, the Holocaust. It's just amplified for women of color. But that could literally build within you to the point where you feel anger even though you haven't necessarily had something done personally to you. Yeah, that is interesting. Yep. And there's like TikTok trends that expose it. I think of Labor by Paris Paloma, which Mm -hmm. we love, and how it talks a lot about just the invisible labor that women do every day that they don't get any credit for and how so Mm -hmm. many people relate to that even though I think you even mentioned it. Like you're in a happy marriage. Yeah. (laughs) But like something about listening to that song makes you feel fury inside that you can't really explain. And then then the other one I think of is the TikTok trend Thumbs by Sabrina Carpenter where they had like the mothers and daughters like walking next to each other. Oh, yeah. And then it showed the passing down until the end. They usually had one of them not following the pattern. So, yeah, that's the idea of feminine rage and how it bleeds into it and how like we're connected in so many ways to the women that came before us and the struggles that they went through. Absolutely. And even if you don't necessarily subscribe to that or if we inherit things or we're just giving you a bunch of things that you get to be mad about. (laughs) And I guess to put a trigger warning too, we're talking about some pretty heavy things that happened in history today and giving some pretty horrific examples in a way, to be honest, of whether it was done to individual women or groups of women, some things I just didn't know about at all. Mm -hmm. And it was really shocking for me to realize how, I don't know, how recent still some of these things were like still within the last hundred years of our history. And so, yeah, it felt right. A good way to start our Feminine Rage Month was just to tell you a bunch of reasons why yeah you could be angry about this and should be angry about yeah. this that this ever happened Ooh. so i didn't know about most of these definitely not before starting the podcast and even then only very loosely since then until diving into this so it's yeah Whew. yeah it's heavy and it like is. it should be you know yeah it definitely should it's be crazy but anyways well before we start, though, I do want to shout out some previous episodes that we've done that I think can tie into this. I think even – was it last March that we did the one about mental health or – That was, was that, very early on. I was think that, that was like our 15th episode or something. Oh, nice. One of our earlier episodes is like when mental health is weaponized against women where we talked about Camille Claudel and Britney Spears, mm-hmm. which honestly since we've even done that episode – She's now out of her conservatorship. At that time that we did the episode, I don't think she was either just starting to maybe try and get out of it 
It was, like, on trial at the time, I think. Yeah, Yeah. but, like, nothing recently had even started. Mm -hmm. So that was a kind of a crazy thing to learn about. And then also we compared it to Camille Claudel, which was a sculptor, right? Yeah. From the past and compared it to her story. And then we do also have just another episode, just Feminine Rage, Women in Anger, which ties into, of course, now us doing a whole month Mm -hmm. based off of that original episode that we did on it. So, yeah, if you want to go learn more, you can go check those out. Yeah, especially the when mental health is weaponized against women. That one didn't get a lot of listens, but it actually ties in really perfectly to the first story (laughs) that I'm going to talk about. I'm going to actually start with a little bit about that in that episode. Yeah, that's perfect. Talked about this woman named Elizabeth Packard and how she was like this pivotal figure in actually advocating for women's rights when it came to their own mental health. Crazy that had to happen, but it did. But it did. Because <laughs> in the 19th century, men could actually commit their wives to mental asylums without a medical evaluation. Mm-hmm. So they could literally just say, my wife is insane. She needs to be institutionalized. And they would take her without her own consent, without a doctor even looking at her, Mm -hmm. literally nothing. And then they would immediately start medicating and doing all this stuff to them without them having any say in the matter. And this most famously happened to Elizabeth Packard because she had different religious beliefs than her husband. And she spoke out against him and he got mad. And so he threw her in a mental asylum. And she actually spent three years there and then had to go to court to prove that she was sane before they would let her leave. And then after she was released, then it obviously spurred this whole lifelong mission for her of trying to reform the legal treatment of the mentally ill and protect the rights of married women because they didn't have any. (laughs) All of their rights were given immediately to their husband, which of course allowed for abuse of the process. And it also helped shine some light on asylum conditions, which were also very horrific at the time and very detrimental. She published a lot of books. She talked about her experience living there for three years. She lobbied for reforms and then also helped impact a lot of laws for the rights of women and mental health. Her whole story is harrowing. We actually talk a lot more about it in that episode. Go check that out. But one thing that... I wanted to tie into that is also another famous story of actually a daughter this time instead of a wife who was forced to undergo a horrible medical treatment of an early lobotomy because Mm. of her parents. So (laughs) the sad part is that there are two sides to this story and I know which one I believe. This is about Rosemary Kennedy and her forced lobotomy. If you don't know, this is JFK's sister. So the assassinated president's sister. But the Kennedys have always been like a really prominent political family. And if you immediately Google Rosemary Kennedy's lobotomy, what comes up is all these stupid articles talking about how she was born with mental disorders and so her parents tried to do this lobotomy to cure her and then it led to an out and like something that they didn't expect and so that's why she was yeah and that's what happened 
that's not it. I actually, there's a New York Times article. There's a Daily Mail article. There's, I found real sources talking about that. You didn't go down like a Reddit thread. No. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, these are like legit sources that are basically saying, no, that's crap. Mm -hmm. This is actually what happened. So her problems did begin at birth. And this is just a horrible story from the beginning because of the lack of awareness about like birthing conditions and women's Mm. health and everything from the very, very beginning. She was born on September 13th in 1918. And her mother's first two children, Joe Jr. and Jack, had been safely delivered at home by the same obstetrician. But when she went into labor with Rosemary, the doctor wasn't immediately available. And the nurse was trained to deliver babies but was like waiting for the doctor to arrive. I don't know if she was just nervous. I don't know if she was properly Mm. trained. I don't know what happened, but she tried to stop the birth. Ooh. You can't do that. Yeah, (laughs) I was like, I don't know. So she was like trying to tell her to keep her legs closed. Ah. And then when that didn't work, she was like forcing the baby's head to stay in the birth canal for two hours until she was delivered, which that's – scary because the babies can lose oxygen like it's coming out like it can't breathe in that in-between place yeah yeah so she was born and they didn't notice anything really until she was a child and then she started suffering from developmental delays it wasn't (laughs) a lot of their records made it sound like she was just not capable of anything found journals and letters from her and everything it's more likely that she just had autism okay yeah that kind of socially just a little delayed not like yes she was aware enough of everything to be frustrated that she couldn't keep up with her siblings who were all known Mm -hmm. for their smarts and athletics and everything else Mm -hmm. but she had a really hard time learning how to read and learning how to write Mm -hmm. and her family really valued perfection And so it was really hard for her. At age 11, she was sent to like a boarding school. And then they ended up having her change schools every few years because they were like, oh, we can't deal with her disabilities or her mood swings are too much. Or her parents were like, maybe you just need to change a scene. I don't know. But from what they found out from like her letters and everything is that she was just like really desperate to please. She wrote her father and Mm -hmm. said, I would do anything to make you happy. And that's tragic. Yeah, just such a sweet girl. They tried a lot of experimental medical treatments in the beginning. They would like inject her with things to like treat hormone imbalances, hoping that it would fix her experimental Mm. injections, by the way, as if that's not enough. And then her siblings were like supportive, but of course, a little bit impatient. They're kids. They didn't fully understand. But also, I don't think their parents were very compassionate about teaching them. And of Mm -hmm. course, empathy is a learned skill. So yeah. (laughs) And then her mother didn't help the fact that she had nine kids and she was obsessed with their weight. It becomes like a repeating thing throughout their whole Mm. lives. Because like I said, they really valued perfection. And Rosemary would like, she put on a couple of pounds at boarding school and she like felt the need to send her father a letter apologizing, saying like, sorry, I think that I'm fat. And then he wrote back and told the school that his daughter was getting altogether too fat. Her mother would do the same with all of her kids. Be like, you need to watch your weight. You need to like cut down on pounds. You need to eat more. You guys are all wrong. Mm. Fix it. Some other things that kind of show where the family was at is that her older brother, Joe Jr., 
He really doted on her, but then he went on this post-Harvard grad trip grad trip to Germany in 1934 and ended up like writing this horrible letter to his father where he praised Hitler's sterilization policy because he said it would do away with many of the disgusting specimens of men of understanding or empathy for anyone who had disabilities or was differently abled. Then her father became the U.S. ambassador to Great Britain, and she actually blossomed. She was this wonderful, flirtatious beauty, is what they said. She was Mm. well-rehearsed. She made a stunning debut at Buckingham Palace. She went to a convent school where she thrived. She was training to become a Montessori teacher's aide. And doing really well. And, of course, getting some male attention because she was stunning. But then the war happened in 1939. And they all had to go back to New York. Mm -hmm. And so she joined them there. And then Joseph Kennedy pissed off the president because he believed in isolationist views. But he had to Mm -hmm. resign from his post. She returned. And then they said she regressed. I don't know if you're like doing really well, finally feel like you're coming in on your own, not being treated like a different person, and then you have to go home <laughs> where yeah. your family seems to be really unsympathetic. I feel like I probably would regress too. They said she had seizures and violent tantrums and will hit and hurt people in the vicinity of her. Mm. So they sent her to a summer camp. She was kicked out after a few weeks. Then she went to a Philadelphia boarding school where she was there for a few months. And then they sent her to a convent school in Washington, D.C. I'm sorry, but so much of this is just passing her around so that they don't have to put up with her. so they don't have to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. While she was in Washington, D.C., she had some rebellion and ended up wandering off a lot at night. And nothing happened. But Joseph Kennedy was like, hey, I'm trying to set up this political career for my sons. Mm -hmm. And if my daughter gets pregnant, she's going to ruin everything. So Mm -hmm. he was like, that can't happen. Let's give her an experimental lobotomy. Nice. Okay. So that's why. Nothing was really wrong with Rosemary. I really want to stress that. Learning disabilities do not mean you deserve to have your brain cut open. This part kills me because he should have known better. They were so wealthy. And the American Medical Association had already warned that lobotomies weren't really mm-hmm. <laughs> a great thing to do, but he sent her in anyway. And mm. at the time, no anesthesia was used, <gasps> and she was wide awake. And the way that this doctor was told to perform or decided that how he would perform lobotomies was for other patients, he would use an ice pick. For her, he decided he was going to use a kitchen knife because it would be gentler. (laughs) But he basically would tell his patients to recite a song or a story for Rosemary apparently was the Lord's Prayer or America the Beautiful. And he would continue drilling holes until they stopped. That's so eerily poetic that those are the things that she would chant. Right? Yeah. It... So it was like he would basically cut nerve endings until you couldn't understand him anymore. And then he would be like, oh, it's done. He went too far. Duh. You can't cut into someone's brain. I'm sorry. It's just so ridiculous. <laughs> like, I don't think we do lobotomies anymore. I'm pretty sure it's not. A th- and if it is, it's probably like a very extreme measure because you literally can't just slice people's brains. It doesn't work like that. 
Of course, it left her permanently disabled, unable to care for herself. They put her through months of physical therapy, but she was never able to regain full use of her arm. She walked with a limp for the rest of her life. And this is just from her brain. She wasn't injured. This is just what damaging your brain can do. She could only speak like a very few words then at this point (laughs) because they ruined everything. Because they decided, oh, no, what a problem. We don't want to deal with this at all anymore because now she's just completely not fit for society. They sent her to a private psychiatric institution and then eventually sent her to a church-run facility in Wisconsin. Joe never saw her again. Oh, wow. Yeah, her father never visited her after he realized that she couldn't be fixed. He never came by again. Yeah. Um, He passed away in 1961 from a stroke. And then after that, her mother did come to visit. She had never told anyone what had happened to her daughter. When she would refer to it, she would just say it was a horrible accident. And she did come to visit after her husband died. In some accounts, she claims that her husband didn't tell her what had happened. Mm-hmm. Other ones say, no, she knew. <laughs> and yeah. she just didn't want to deal with it. But at the sight of her mother, Rosemary, who was being escorted by two nuns, broke into a sprint, lunged at the elderly woman, beating her chest and screaming at her. Good. Right? I'm like, I yeah, don't blame you. Would probably do the same thing. And what does her mother say after all of this? She gets attacked by her daughter for never visiting, and her first comment is that Rosemary looked fat. Oh, my God. I did not know this about the Kennedys. She didn't come very often after that, obviously, because her daughter literally physically attacked her. But she would call the nuns all the time and ask about her daughter's diet and became obsessed with it. And then she would also, when she did come visit, she would tell Rosemary not to have any dessert because she needed to lose Mm. weight. And the nuns were, of course, pissed off (laughs) in her honor because what the heck. And they would often go to the kitchen and get an extra dessert and give it to her. One of the sisters, she would say that Rosemary lived for those little treats. So it was, here's your reward for having to put up with your stupid mom. So ridiculous. And then what makes it even worse is that Mrs. Kennedy would often wonder out loud why God had taken her three able-bodied, brilliant, and talented sons and left her daughter who was incapacitated. Oh, my. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Here's, like, a little bit. Her siblings originally weren't aware that their sister had even gone through this they were told that she had wanted a quiet life away from their political careers in the midwest Mm. and was serving as a special education teacher's aide because that's what she had been studying more than 30 years after the lobotomy her mother did arrange for her to leave and come and visit her family at hyannis port Mm -hmm. it went pretty well and so then she was able to reunite with her siblings and actually after her mother passed away a decade later rosemary passed away but her siblings were actually all with her four Mm. of them it was eunice jean pat and ted were by her side so she didn't die alone there is some brightness in this and what makes this story sweet is that her sister eunice kennedy shriver when she found out what happened she actually really made a big difference Uh, she is one of the founders of the special olympics Because she was so horrified by what had been done to her sister, she's 
what became like this passionate champion for people with disabilities. She persuaded her father for the last few years of his life to fund a for to use his fortune to fund research. And then after JFK was elected president, she lobbied him to establish government entities like the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. And after her mother passed away, she was the one who was responsible for Rosemary's care. And then the youngest family member, Ted, he was only nine when Rosemary vanished. And so he didn't really have any clue what was happening. But he later became a senator and took up the cause as well after realizing all of it and cited her as his inspiration when he sponsored bills like the groundbreaking American with Disabilities Act. Okay. They like (laughs) fixed some things. But it just goes to show like – When a lot of stories will make it seem like Rosemary was in her teens when she got her lobotomy, and I guess I didn't mention her age. She was 23. This was a full adult woman who, by like all rights, should have been able to say, no, you can't drill into my head and have her own medical autonomy, but she didn't. And it's so similar to what happened to Elizabeth Packard, where the minute they felt like someone was misbehaving... They'd Mm -hmm. send them off so they didn't have to put up with them and how that had been done to so many women. And we know of Rosemary Kennedy's story because her family's so famous, but there's probably millions of other stories that we'll never even know of women who went through more, if not worse. That's – wow. Yeah, I didn't know that. I did not know about Rosemary. It's really sad. Oh, gosh. I just – can't even imagine. They're like, oh, you're drawing too much attention. We don't want you to get pregnant. It's gotta go. Yeah. That's tragic. Yeah. It kind of comes in, you talked about like forced sterilization and things like that. That's the first story I'm talking about, which is the forced sterilization of Anne Cooper Hewitt. Mm-hmm. And there's actually a book called The Unfit Heiress, The Tragic Life and Scandalous Sterilization of Anne Cooper Hewitt, who, huh, it's just crazy. This story, first off, that book seems super interesting. Definitely have added that to my list of things that I want to check out. It's by Audrey Claire Farley. I should mention too, there was one about Rosemary Kennedy as well. So like- Oh, cool. Yeah. Books. You can learn so much more. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I'm going to tell this story maybe a little bit disjointed just because I pulled from different articles that kind of told different things. But essentially what happened here is in January of 1936, less than 100 years ago, 21-year-old Ann Cooper Hewitt, who is a well-known San Francisco heiress, called a press conference alongside her attorney and announced that she was suing her mother, Marion Cooper Hewitt, because she claimed that she had been secretly sterilized at the behest of her mother, who paid two doctors to perform the procedure in order to prevent her from claiming an inheritance under her father's estate, which obviously that got a lot of press. When Peter Cooper Hewitt, whose grandfather actually founded the Cooper Union. And they were very prominent people. Like his father was Abram Hewitt and his uncle were both mayors of New York. They were very prominent people. But he died in 1921. And his estate was worth over $4 million, which was the equivalent of $59 million today, which yeah, is pretty good money. Yeah, That's quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And according to his will, Anne would receive two-thirds of this, and her mother would receive only one-third. Mm-hmm. But the caveat to that stipulated that Anne, if Anne were to die childless, her share would revert back to her mother. Which so, – So many problems already with that. 
I'm, I think I'm realizing though that it's okay. So if she were like, I think it's like she'll still get the money, but if she dies and then there's no one to pass it on to, then it will just go to the mom. Okay. Because. But it's weird. The first time I read that, I was like, oh, so she doesn't get that money until she has a child. But I don't think that's necessarily what it was saying. Okay. I think I get what you're saying. Yeah. Because it's she doesn't get anything unless she has a kid because she's worthless without children. But (laughs) I I don't think that's what it meant. But I think it was more so, okay, if she dies and there's no one for her to pass it on to, it'll just go to the mom. Yeah. I mean, I guess. Okay. (laughs) Her mother's solution to this, though, was to make it so she couldn't have a child, which to me, it's just interesting in the way that I was like, did you really think you were going to outlive your daughter? Was the next step going to be arranging for her murder? If you're willing to get her forcibly sterilized, I feel like a hitman isn't that crazy. That's what I was thinking too. Yeah. But anyways, so what happened though that made this happen? So in August of 1934, when she was 20, and so apparently she was still a minor at the time. I don't know if like, I don't know like when those laws changed, Mm. but She was having lunch with her mother in San Francisco when she felt a rush of pain in her stomach and she was taken to the hospital where Dr. Tilton Tillman, without ever formally examining her, told her that she had appendicitis. She received an appendectomy from Dr. Samuel Boyd four days later, which is confusing to me because I feel like don't those things have to happen pretty quickly. Uh, Yeah. Appendicitis. (laughs) That's dangerous. You can't. Yeah. My okay. brother had appendicitis. They took his appendix out the minute he got to the hospital. You that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Can't leave it in you. During the weeks that she spent recovering in the hospital, she just overheard things that were really concerning to her. During this time, she overheard a few staff members ask her nurse how the idiot patient was doing. and also heard the nurse make several phone calls to Dr. Tillman, assuring him that this patient, quote, didn't suspect a thing. Gosh. Uh, I feel like that just gave me so much medical anxiety. Can you imagine? Mm -hmm. She said, I learned then that my mother and Dr. Tillman had told everyone that I was a mental case. And so that's why they're just like, oh, the idiot patient. Yeah. And I discovered that I had undergone a salpendectomy, having my tubes removed along with my appendix. This is sad because later in her testimony, her attorney asked if she had hoped to marry one day and she replied that she did, but then added, but I don't know if anyone will have me now. Oh. Which is just a really sad thing to provide a little bit of context. So she hired a, hired obviously a lawyer. And the whole article I found, by the way, is so good. It's on crimereads.com. And I think actually though, the article takes from the book. Yeah, there was like a little note at the end that just said that it was used with permission from the book, but that it was an excerpt. So just go get the book. Like I definitely want to go get it now because it's just such a tragic story, but it's super interesting. Anyways. So her lawyer's name was Matthew Brady and quote, Brady immediately conferred with his assistant, August Fortner and police inspector George Engler about the matter. Because at this point too, they were also dealing with what the precedent was for things like Mm -hmm. things. The group's cursory research revealed that over 10,000 individuals in the state had been sterilized in public institutions since California had passed a law authorizing sterilization in 1909. But there existed no record of the number of sterilizations that were performed in private practice. And although some legal experts predicted the number was large, the law didn't authorize these procedures, meaning that there could be hundreds or even thousands of individuals like 
and whose re- rights had been violated. Like they couldn't track that. But then because of this thing, they were like very concerned. So California State Health Officer J.C. Greiger with his policy update. So basically he was like, OK, it's not as though anyone can just be plucked off the street and snipped. We must communicate this fact or else there will be riots. But Brady had recently learned that Californians were no, maybe. No, 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 no. Here's what happens. Like impoverished people, Right. Like people that they deemed were like unfit for society, they, it wasn't because, okay, at the time in America, eugenics was actually a lot more believed. I mean, you talked about that with just the Kennedys. Yeah. And, um, okay, I, I don't remember what I had watched that made this point. And now I so I, but I swear I watched something that was like trustworthy where it brought up the fact because obviously Hitler in World War II, eugenics was a really big thing there. But they brought up the fact that actually in America, those beliefs were being upheld as well. And I don't know if it was just like a knee jerk reaction of like after seeing what basically like the logical conclusion to eugenics is, which is like the Holocaust. They were like, oh, this isn't good. Or like almost like they realized that their beliefs were too similar to the Nazis. And so then like oh, okay. the widespread belief of eugenics, I can, they halted that research because they yeah. were like, oh, this is bad. That makes sense. But for many decades though, there had been individuals that were sent to homes. Like I said, it was people like where it's like almost, oh, if they would look at someone's genealogical line and be like, oh, this family has been in poverty forever. Okay, well, let's, let's sterilize them. That way we can make sure that the next generation also isn't poor. So, like, they thought these things were, like, genetic, you know, instead of systemic. I know. I'm like, believe it or not, poor people can become rich if you give them money. (laughs) But also, it's maybe there's other things that are – anyways, whatever. For many decades as well, individuals had been sent to homes where they could be rehabilitated following a pregnancy or cured from deviant habits, masturbation, or homosexuality. But sexual deviance, especially among women, had grown too rampant to be contained this way, sterilization advocates said. And there simply weren't enough homes to house all the wayward women to be found on the streets. So there were people who oh were like being like, no, we should deal with sexually mis- bad women in this way. Like, that I was, cannot get over. There are that simply was too many group. wayward women on the streets. Yeah. <laughs> like it's like, we can't institutionalize them. So we yeah. should just sterilize them. We don't have enough space for all these wayward women. Yeah. Oh, okay. My gosh. Another crazy thing is that actually there were a lot of physicians that agreed with this practice because for decades they had been arguing that sexually deviant behaviors were medical and not moral matters. And they often would say the same thing about poverty and other social circumstances. Quote, the conditions once considered criminal are really pathological and come within the providence of the physician. And this was like from an editor of the medical record in 1884. And so like to justify this oversight of sexual abnormality, they would observe that morally loose people tended to have enlarged reproductive organs or something. So they'd be like, oh, this is why they're acting this way. And then therefore they were able to have an argument as to like why they think they should do that. Okay. Yeah. Here's the thing. I don't know if this is like actually what the doctors like believed mm-hmm. or because another thing that I read too was that the mom gave both of the doctors like $9,000 each to perform the surgery. And granted, that doesn't seem that much. That seems like it's a what lot you would expect. Though, when you consider but, his fortune. 
Yeah, but and also they brought up the fact that actually that procedure normally would only be a couple hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. So she grossly overpaid them to do this. But they would refer back to the fact that she masturbated as like, oh, this is like why the doctors need to do this. Quote, as far as Anne's physicians were concerned, a little girl caught masturbating was sure to become a danger to men in society. That was if she didn't obviate the need for men altogether. And then, quote, Anne is manlike in her urges, one physician told her mother after hearing about her alleged fondness of self-gratification. And if she keeps up her nasty habit, she won't perceive any need to marry one day. Which is sad too, because that could be completely false. Not that there's anything even wrong with it, but the fact that Mm -hmm. like... They, her mother just wanted the fortune. So at the end yeah. of the day, Anne could have been not even doing anything. And that's just what they were using as Yeah, a, that's what she was like, like. see, she's crazy because she, yeah. Yeah. Crazy. And the idea, Anne is man-like in her urges. So it's, we want you to be like men other than when you're too much like men and then you can't be anything like. <laughs> also, it's okay uh, for men to have these urges but not women. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Not really. Okay, so she filed her civil suit against her mom for a half a million dollars in January of 1936, alleging that she paid the doctors to remove her fallopian tubes without her knowledge or consent. And then soon after, the San Francisco district attorney charged the mother and both doctors with, quote, mayhem, which was a rare charge that, quote, was reserved for cases involving the act of disabling or disfiguring an individual. And that was punishable up to 14 years in prison. What's crazy, though, is that a lengthy and exhausting trial actually resulted in the charges being dropped against the daughter, uh, against the doctors and her mother. And she ended up settling the civil suit for just $150,000. What? But her mother actually ended up dying just three years later following a stroke at the age of 55. And then Anne would go on to be married five times and then unfortunately died pretty young from cancer at age 40 in 1956. Gosh. And just to add insult to injury, there were many states that had laws on the books that could allow for involuntary sterilization of mentally handicapped individuals, but they did not begin to repeal them until the 1970s, which is just too recent. There are people who are still alive who were born during that time. And they were not even that old. Nope. (laughs) So um, anyways, there's a book that is now added to my list and is just insane. It's just crazy. That's all. Oh my gosh. Okay. Speaking of things done to women medically against their will. (laughs) Oh my gosh. All these stories are like this horrible (laughs) story. Don't worry. We just have four more for you. Yeah. It's a long episode. Oh well. These two stories are extremely controversial because – and they're like tied together. So one of them is very short. One of them is more famous because they ended up doing so much good for humanity that people have mixed feelings about it. But it doesn't Mm. change the fact that what happened was wrong. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I understand why some people might have mixed feelings about it because they're like, but if without that, we wouldn't have had all of this. But like, it doesn't change the fact that the root of it was still bad. It's mm. I know we brought up the Nazis so many times, but like all of their experiments on their victims and everything and how that gave us like a lot of knowledge about medical procedures and stuff that was oh, very valuable. Yes. Because they took notes, extended notes about everything they were trying and they tried dyeing people's eyes different colors and like changing all sorts of things and, like, getting rid of stuff. But it doesn't change the fact that, like, human experimentation is horrific, especially in the conditions that they did it. And what is the cost of, like, knowledge that 
in my opinion, no. <laughs> like, no. Okay. So you've probably heard at least a little bit about the story of Henrietta Lacks. Mm-hmm. I'm I sure. Yeah. Like her name has come up once again in another book. There's The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks that you can mm-hmm. read. And let's go over her story. So she was actually born Loretta Pleasant on August 1st in 1920 in Roanoke, Virginia. And it's funny. Apparently, they don't know when her name changed to Henrietta. But like her family just started calling her Henrietta instead of Loretta. (laughs) That became her name. (laughs) I don't know what happened there. But she was just like a very sweet girl. She loved red nail polish. She had really pretty hazel eyes. A very small waist. She wore these neatly pleated skirts. Her mother died very early, and so she ended up being raised by her maternal grandfather in Clover, Virginia. And it was in a cabin that were part of a plantation owned by her ancestors. So she was reared alongside her cousin and future husband, which I have to remind myself, it was very common in the day to marry your cousin. (laughs) David Day Lax, who started working on the tobacco farms at a young age and contributed to her family's livelihoods. They grew up together. Then they got married in 1941 and moved to Maryland for better employment opportunities. They actually had five children together. Kind of like a tangent, but another sad note is that their daughter, Elsie, had special needs from birth and was actually placed in a mental institution where she died in 1955 from this harrowing procedure where they were trying to drain liquid from her brain to get a better x-ray photo. That's so sad. Which apparently wasn't that uncommon of a practice. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So that happened. And the sad part, too, is that because their family was black, she was sent to a different mental institution because segregation Mm. was a thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure conditions weren't great. And then after her last child was born in 1950, Henrietta was diagnosed with cervical cancer. And that would end up killing her very quickly four and a half months later. Yeah. So when she was being treated, she had to go to John Hopkins, which at the time was like a black hospital. Mm-hmm. And so the way that they treated it was with like radium tube inserts. And then they would like oh. discharge them <laughs> and then have them do x-ray treatments and then come back. I don't know. Cancer is horrible. And I'm like, is there – I guess they were trying and that's mm-hmm. all they knew at the time. But still, it just sounds weird. I mean, even the way they have to treat it today is still horrible. I know. Horrific. During her treatments, though, two samples were taken from her cervix without her permission or knowledge. One sample was healthy tissue and the other was cancerous. And oh. they were given to George Otto Gay, who is a ph- physician and cancer researcher at Johns Hopkins. One thing I want to mention, it was not an uncommon practice at the time for them to do this. Those were wow. taken from people all the time and passed around. Like, it wasn't crazy. Mm-hmm. And these are later known as HeLa cells, which notably were named because it's the first two letters Henrietta of her first name. And the, for, yeah. yeah. Wow. And But you've definitely heard of HeLa cells, at least at one point or another. He realized really quickly that her cells – were unique because they could reproduce rapidly and survive long enough for extensive research, which was crazy because no other previous cells had been able to do that. Most of them would only last a few days, but hers were essentially immortal. Do they know why? (laughs) I don't know. There was like all these long medical articles, so I didn't look into it too much. But no, it's fair, but whoa. (laughs) But yeah, for some reason, her cells didn't die. So they basically were given immortal cells oh you can test this you can do this 
with them. Too bad it didn't work on her body. Right? Yeah. She went in for a routine checkup just like I said a couple of months later, was admitted because of severe abdominal pain. She had cervical Mm -hmm. cancer. They gave her blood transfusions, but she ended up passing away very Mm. shortly after. And then an autopsy that they had done, which was only a partial, showed that the cancer had metastasis, whatever the word is, it spread throughout her whole body. Notably, after her death, he actually had his lab assistant go in and take more HeLa cells from her body at the autopsy facility. Once again, not an uncommon practice. It was actually considered perfectly legal which is even more messed up, in my opinion. This is where it comes in the medical breakthroughs, right? The mortality allowed the cells to be used in numerous significant medical breakthroughs, including the development of the polio vaccine. Whoa. Uh, Yeah. They were mass-produced because they could split them and they would survive. Live forever. Yeah. So they were able to create a bunch of HeLa cells. And then they were shared globally, which aided in the research of cancer, AIDS, gene mapping, and also were the first human cells to be cloned. However, because of the widespread use of them, it led to the contamination of other cell cultures. And then this is where it just gets even more messed up because then all of Henrietta Lacks' remaining family members started getting all of these calls and messages from a bunch of medical doctors asking for blood samples. And they were like, what is happening? Because they did not know that any of this had been going on. They'd been completely unaware that her cells had been taken. They had no idea that she had contributed to science. They had Mm -hmm. no knowledge of any of it until 1975, which just goes to show that there are some serious ethical issues with like consent and biological samples and stuff like that. Her family didn't consent. Like I said, it was very common. The cells were used for commercial stuff, too. Mm -hmm. People were profiting off of these cells for different things without her family even knowing. There was this Obviously getting any profits from themselves. Yes. There was like this publication that was created that had like extensive information about these cells which then her family were really worried about because that means that like their medical records are basically like publicized knowledge because they're related to her like it's her records or their records so they were really worried about that and then also there was this case that had determined that a person doesn't have property rights over their discarded cells and the ones that were taken after her death or like Mm. apparently they didn't belong to her anymore which is weird to me because desecration of a body is a crime but yeah (laughs) yeah that's that feels disgusting they ended up reaching some agreements with a lot of these societies because the family obviously moved forward to sue Mm because of what had been done and what was continuing to be done they ended up granting the family some control over the DNA sequence data and acknowledge their contribution to science, like making it publicly known that like it's because of her that all of this Mm -hmm. was able to happen. And then also in 2021, like very recently, the Lacks family sued Thermo Fisher Scientific for profiting off of the HeLa cell line without consent, which led to an undisclosed settlement just last year, showing that there's some new steps being taken in the law of biological samples and consent when it comes to medical because of this case and kind Mm -hmm. of the widespread knowledge of what happened. 
other countries are like now creating specific rules and laws around informed consent and privacy to help protect patients from stuff like this. And if you want to learn more about Henrietta Lacks specifically, HBO has a film that's based on the book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by Rebecca Skloot. And then notably, she has been honored now in 2021 by the World Health Organization in for her contribution to medical science and put that in honoring Hen- Henrietta Lacks, who acknowledges the importance of reckoning and past scientific injustices and advancing racial equity in health and science. It's also an opportunity to recognize women, particularly women of color who have made incredible but often unseen contributions to medical science. Wow. I've seen that book. I just didn't realize that's what that book was about. That's crazy. Yeah. It sounds like a fantasy novel where it's like the yeah, immortal I, life. And you're like, she looks I didn't her. even know it was based on a true story. I was yeah. like, oh, that's a fantasy novel. Nope. It's a real story oh about a woman whose biological DNA was stolen. And in a similar vein, but like obviously shorter, is that apparently like at the very beginning of the invention of birth control, they did human testing in Puerto Rico. Ooh. Yeah. There was actually like a really good article about it. I'm not going to dive into everything because it talks a lot about the whole invention of it and like all this stuff. It's on the Washington Post. It's by Teresa Vargas. I would highly recommend. It was published in 2017, but yeah, incredible stuff. But they just talked about how like birth control was so controversial from the very beginning. (laughs) I feel like Mm. we could actually do a whole episode on birth control because this was such an interesting article. They talked about how many people like fought against it and then like Puerto Rico was an interesting place to do it because there's so much like strong Catholicism there. And they obviously, Mm. I think even some Catholics today don't believe in birth control. So it was like an interesting thing. But the way that they marketed it was like, this is going to give you freedom. Like it will give you choices, which obviously is how many of us view birth control today. Like the opportunity to actually plan for a family instead of just having one. Having one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then also there's other benefits with like ovarian cysts and stuff like that birth control helps with. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, they did human testing in Puerto yeah. Rico because it didn't have as many laws against it like the United States did. They talked about how the people who created it, and it was notably a lot of women who were actually on the board to create birth control. They believed in it fully. They were even sending it to family members and stuff. So they didn't think that they were harming them. But yeah. also when you look at it, that it's just – there was Not a lot of overcrowding great. there. There was a lot of poverty. And so it was an attractive place to go and test out population control. Mm-hmm. And then in the first year of the trial, apparently 25% of the women quit because they lost interest or they found it undesirable. Dizziness and nausea were frequent complaints. And at the time, it's also notable that it was given to them in much higher doses than we use today, Oh, which is also kind of a little sketchy. Something else that kind of pissed me off is that two women actually ended up dying in the initial trials, but they didn't do autopsies. Mm. They have no idea if it was even related to the drug, which I feel like is just malpractice. Like if you're going to do a study, you should at least figure out if it's a result. Yeah. Um, But he talked about how effective it was because there was only like one pregnancy that happened among the women who didn't miss a dose. Uh And so they were trying to get a lot of funding for it and everything. It led to birth control being widely available, obviously in a pill form, which is crazy that we're able to have birth control in a pill form. And that it led to further 
funding and research and more control over women's bodies. And they also said that years later, following congressional hearings in 1970, some women would still question the pill's safety and the process behind the drug's approval. The Washington-based Women's Liberation Group issued a statement at the time saying, in spite of the fact that it is women who are taking the pill and taking the risk, it was legislators and doctors and the drug company representatives, all men of course, who were testifying and dissecting women as if they were no more important than the laboratory animals they work with every day. Which, very akin to some Roe v. Wade, IVF rulings Mm -hmm. going on right now. But what was a little fitting about that, though, is that the women in Puerto Rico were then left grappling with what happened to them. Because Mm -hmm. it didn't really – they weren't giving them liberation. They didn't fully inform them about what they had participated in. You could call them pioneers or guinea pigs, as the article says. And they had remained part of the trial until 1964 – receiving the drug even as women across the United States were complaining about side effects and lawsuits Mm -hmm. were being launched against the manufacturer. So it's the ending thing it said is the experiments were both good and bad. Why didn't they let us make some decisions for ourselves? I have difficulty explaining that time to my own grown children. I have very mixed feelings about the entire thing. Valid. Yeah. So So. I think both of these stories are very notable for the fact that it's like women of color especially and how there was like a further devaluation. I'm going to be transparent with everyone. My power just went out. <laughs> so I actually don't know what I was saying just before this. I don't know how Sadie will edit it. We'll find out. <laughs> I bet we'll figure it out. <laughs> but basically what I thought was interesting about these stories is just how it shows that women of color were especially taken advantage of in these early days. Because Mm -hmm. I feel like there was a further devaluation of them. Like we've talked about intersectional feminism and how women of color have to deal with racism and feminism at the same time. And so it creates this tier of like white women, black men, Mm -hmm. black women, or like people, women of color, people of color, and then white women and how hard that is to overcome when you have those extra things against you. And I think it's just very notable that we're like curing people with cells that were stolen from a black woman. And then creating birth control off of the backs of the entire female population of Puerto Rico. That's messed up. Wow. So this episode is actually going to end up being a two-part episode. So those are the first stories that we are touching on this week. But we have another episode with more stories that are coming out. Unfortunately, this episode is a really long one and could be even longer. Yes, so it really could. We have a lot to touch on here. But we felt like it was a good place to stop talking about medical things that have been done mm-hmm. against women and their lack of consent in that. I think it's very mm-hmm. topical for a lot of things that are going on right now, very sadly. And then the next ones, we'll talk more about like some external forces that are happening to women against their control and all of that lovely stuff that just fills me with rage. <laughs> <laughs> Again, very topical, yep. very relevant episode then. Agree. All right. It feels weird to be like, have a great week, everybody. How <laughs> about stay angry, guys? We've got all of Women's stay. History Month. Go get some merch. There's nothing like a mad woman. Truly, there nothing is yep. like a mad woman. Yeah. Check out our merch at mm-hmm. morethanamusedpodcast.com. If you want to get straight there, you can also add a dash store. Link is, Perfect. of course – in the pile. You always (laughs) know where the links are. We don't even have to tell you anymore. Nope, you know where they are. You know where to find them or the links. And yeah, subscribe on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Yep. And we're happy to have you. We are. We are happy to have you. Hope that 
this month will be inspiring for you. Yes. Help you feel more anger is powerful, right? That's the main mm-hmm. thing we're getting to with all these quotes and everything else we're talking about. It's okay to be mad. Stay yeah. mad. One of the quotes that's on the back of this hoodie is stay mad until it's fixed for everyone. And I think that's mm. an important part of these stories that even if your life is easy, there's still people out there that are suffering because of the patriarchy and systemic racism and all of that. Yeah. Let's stay angry for them. Good parting thoughts. Yep. All right. We'll be back later this week. Come back for our second episode. See you then. See you then. Bye. Bye. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.